You know, sometimes I think we just don't sing enough. I think we should make some sort of executive decision to add an extra song next week as we get started. We'll see if it gets vetoed maybe about it. Hey, good morning, Leslie Avenue. How's everyone today? You know, I don't know about you, but it's been kind of a tough week for me. Just some things that have gotten me down and been a little hard. But I think that's an excellent reason all the time to get together with brothers and sisters and to give honor to whom honor is due, namely our God and our Savior. I appreciate everybody being here. We're going to look this morning at walking through the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. And I think it's going to be a class uh, sermon, a topic discussion here that's going to be pretty easy because the text is going to teach us. We'll comment and talk about various things, but we're simply going to look at John chapter 12 and what happens in John chapter 12. The title is Jesus Enters Jerusalem. Jesus Enters Jerusalem. But this is an important chapter to study. Why? Well, I like looking at the last things that get said by various people. That's one reason I like to look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where he writes and sends letters and messages to the seven churches, we say, of Asia. These, those were his last messages to congregations. I think that's pretty important. If I knew that this was the last time I'm ever going to be speaking to you or publicly, I'd want to make it important. Well, in John chapter 12, this is, these are, it includes the last statements of Jesus that he makes publicly in the Gospel of John. You may remember a couple of months ago, we looked at the last statements Jesus makes at all in the Gospel of John, where he was talking to his disciples. We looked at that. But these are the last public statements, the last things he says broadly to the public recorded in the Gospel of John. So take a look with me at these last things Jesus says while he's out in public as the Gospel of John records them. And let's see what we can learn this morning. Picking up in verse 12 of John chapter 12, we read, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast. And this is the Passover feast that's coming up. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, when this multitude heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him as he's about ready to come into Jerusalem. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Uh, the census of the Passover that we have, how many people are in Jerusalem for the Passover? Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that about 250,000 lambs were killed as part of the Passover feast. When you multiply that out, that you needed to eat a whole lamb, you needed at least, you know, five to ten people. It takes a few people to eat all that and everything else without for the Passover. You could have had well over two million people in Jerusalem. Large crowd at the time. And this one thing had the Romans all worried about the Passover all the time. Large number of people there in Jerusalem. How many people are here welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem? All I can say is lots. I don't think it was two million people outside the gates of Jerusalem, but it's lots of people. Yet, within the week, right? Within the week, things were going to change. By the way, Hosanna, I have that word underlined up here, is simply the word that means save us now. Save us now. So they were crying out to Jesus, 
save us now. The Lord is coming into the city of Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quote Psalm 118. That's where that passage is. It's in italics. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These branches of palm trees were used in the Feast of Tabernacles for what? I'm not exactly sure, but by this time they were using them for that. Rather than take them with them to the temple, they bring them outside of the city and lay them down kind of as a carpet for Jesus to enter Jerusalem. All these people making such a fuss, if you will, for Jesus coming into Jerusalem, yet some of this crowd who were within a week shouting for Jesus to die. We people, we humans, are often a fickle lot. We like something on Monday and don't like it on Friday. Our minds get changed, influenced by changes in public opinion. It's almost like in the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about seeds that are thrown on soil and they grow up really fast, but then in the heat of the day they wilt. How strong is our commitment? Jesus. Are we shouting, Hosanna, save us now, Lord, on Sunday? And then by Friday, we're like, man, don't, don't need Jesus anymore. Which is what some of these people were probably doing just a few days later. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Sitting on a donkey's colt. And that's a quote from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. What's the significance of riding on a donkey? Well, for one thing, it's a prophecy that Zechariah had made, but we don't really think that way today. When you think of a mighty king, what do you think they would be riding in the town? Well, a horse. Obviously, today they're not riding a horse, right? They're riding some giant uh, Humvee or something. But if you think get rid of cars, you would think of some huge stallion. Going to run over everybody. They didn't have stirrups 2,000 years ago. You're not going to ride a giant horse holding on to it by what? The hair and the mane on the back of the horse or something like that? They didn't have the things we think of from all the Western movies to command and take charge of a giant horse. They rode on the donkey because the donkey was what kings rode on. When the Caesars went somewhere and they needed to travel, they rode donkeys. So the donkey was the sign of royalty, of command, back in the first century. That's why it's so critical that the king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. That's what people would have expected a king to be riding on, and that's what Jesus is all right here. Notice this next thing. The, we're told that it is to fulfill what Zechariah had said several hundred years before, but John tells us something pretty important. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, and that happens when he dies and is resurrected, after the change in Jesus to where his death, burial, and resurrection has occurred, after he has been glorified to the world, then they remember these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. When he comes in on the donkey, his disciples are not apparently in their minds going, ah, Zachariah said that the king would come in on the donkey. No, they, they didn't think of those things until later on after they had the opportunity to reflect, after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
had led them into all truth. Remember we talked about that last week? That was one of the things the Holy Spirit would do for the apostles. He did that, and that's one reason they were able to remember these things and connect these kinds of dots. John, remember, is writing the Gospel of John some 60 years after the events. That's a lot of time to reflect. That's a lot of time for these memories and these dots to get connected. The disciples missed a great deal at the time. They did. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's headed toward the gate to enter Jerusalem. What gate? What did it look like? Almost certainly, that's the gate that he would have come in. Now, do you see a problem with that gate? There aren't any gates. I mean, look, that thing is walled up with stone, right? That, it was not some miracle Jesus did to go through a gate that had a stone wall. I don't know. The stones had been put there to close it up in the 2,000 years since. In the time of Jesus, that was the primary gate that people would have entered Jerusalem through. And so uh, I don't know whether it had some sort of you know, cross-hatch pattern of a gate that came down or whether it was doors. doesn't matter for us. He came in through this gate. Here's a better picture of it. Again, all the stone um, masonry stuff that's been put there to close the gate has happened in the last 2,000 years. That's not how it looked when Jesus came through. But he came through a gate to enter Jerusalem. Let's pick up again. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. So in this crowd that Jesus is among as they're coming into Jerusalem, there were some people that were present in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So some of these people that knew what Jesus had done are with him and they start telling everybody, not only is this the king coming in and crying out Hosanna, we saw him raise a man from the dead. So that message of what Jesus had just done was spreading among the crowd. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard he had done a sign. The word of what he had done had spread. What happens when they, word starts spreading, when news spreads? You want to go out and see for yourself, right? You know, Matt uh, has, has just been declared the, the strongest man on earth. You want to come out and speak? Pitch something for me, you know, whatever it may be. People, when, when there's some notoriety about something, people want to come out and see. Well, pretty no, a lot of notoriety to have raised somebody from the dead. That doesn't happen every day. He's coming into town. Let's go take the look. And that's what they did. Because they had already had done this sign, the people, lots of people, came out to see Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees, remember, had been trying to oppose Jesus. They've been trying to stop him from his mission, and they've been trying to entrap him and perhaps even put him to death. Well, this huge crowd that's around Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem indicates they have failed in that mission. They have failed trying to stop Jesus from getting popular and everybody's coming after Jesus. Look, they say, they're exaggerating here, but the whole world has gone after him. So not only, uh, note that rather than entering Jerusalem quietly, giving this outlaw status that he had, remember the authorities were searching for Jesus. He is kind of an outlaw from the Jewish religious authorities perspective, right? Rather than sneaking in the back gate, 
at midnight. You know, he enters in a way that calls as much attention to him as possible. He did not hide. He did not hide from his mission of what he needed to do. The words he had to say, which he is about to tell us and we're going to read, were for everyone to hear. It wasn't some secret knowledge that only the few could find out about. What Jesus is going to say is for anyone and everyone. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Greeks here is talking about Jewish people who were not living in the land of Israel. Hellenistic Jewish people, Greek Jewish people, from out and about across the Roman Empire. They were Jews, and they had come to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. These Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast, they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, here's a question. Why Philip? Why did they come to Philip? Circumstantial evidence here suggests Philip may have been Greek himself. Philip is a Greek name. Alexander the Great's father was Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon. So Philip is a Greek name. When they find out Philip has a Greek name, they think maybe this person with a Greek name will give us the time of day, so to speak. Right? Will give us the time of day. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. I've always wondered about that statement. Why did Philip go to Andrew? Why didn't Philip simply go directly to Jesus? Well, when you think about the close people to Jesus, we think about four. Peter, how does it go? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And so perhaps as part of, if he had an inner circle, certainly people that seem to be with Jesus, very close to Jesus a lot, Philip may have come saying, hey, I got some Greek people, Greek Jews, Greek Jewish people who want to talk to Jesus. Can you help me as we go over here? Let's go see if Jesus has time to talk to me. I always love the thing about Andrew because was he shy? I don't know. But with Andrew, Andrew is recorded time and time and time again in the New Testament. Almost all of the references to Andrew have him bringing people to Jesus. What a great memory. What a great memory. We need more Phillips. People who are uh, open enough and viewed as open enough by people out in the world, people in our community, that they will come and ask about Jesus. They're not worried that they're going to get condemned. They're not worried that this person won't have time for them. That's what Philip teaches me. I need to be like Philip, somebody that anyone could approach and say, what's all this going on over at Lindsley Avenue? What's this big deal about Jesus? Or tell me more about Jesus. That's what Philip does. Are you a Philip? Are you someone that someone that doesn't go to church at all or very often would be able to come up and ask, tell me about Jesus. I want to find out more about Jesus. I promise you there are a lot of people who are in church buildings today, scattered all over the place. There are a lot of people in church buildings today who are not Phillips. That's really sad. But there are a lot of people in church buildings today who are not Phillips that people would seemingly never approach to ask about Jesus. We've got to be Phillips. We've got to be Phillips. 
also need to be more answers. They came to Philip. He, he got them in the door, so to speak, to talk to Jesus. Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. It's as if Andrew seeks out people to bring them to Jesus. We need to be the kind of person that people out in our neighborhoods, in the world, people that come to us can feel comfortable enough to ask about Jesus. But we also need to be willing to take them directly to Jesus. Sometimes that's bringing them to church with you. Sometimes it's making sure they have a Bible. Sometimes that is simply saying a good word from Jesus to them. Are you an angel? There are lots of people in church buildings today, this morning, who are not angels. It's okay if you're not both. You know, I'm not looking for you to make your name Philip Andrew. But we ought to be one of them. We need to be people that we seem comfortable enough, approachable enough, that people can come to us and ask about Jesus, ask about church, ask about Lindsay Avenue. And then we need others who, if they're not a Philip like that, they certainly want somebody who expresses an interest in bring people right to Jesus. So a challenge this week, next week, the week after. If you don't think you're a Philip or an Andrew today, be more. Philip, this next week, week after, be more like Andrew. More people will know about Jesus, and that's the primary thing we're supposed to be all about. We need more Philip's and Andrews. Jesus answered them. He, he kind of heard what the Pharisees were saying. Remember, the Pharisees said, See, you're doing a whole lot of good trying to make him an outlaw. You're doing a whole lot of good trying to stop him or put him to death. The whole world. Pharisees, I mean, after Jesus. The whole world's gone after Jesus. These Jewish Greek people that he's brought, they're all here. Here's the time. Everybody's standing around. Everybody's near me. Here's what he says. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Remember we talked about glorified earlier? After Jesus was glorified, then the apostles remembered all these things and connected the dots. The time is coming right now. It's here when the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Not a whole lot of things grow from a seed set so on a shelf. You know, if you have dropped a little seed in your kitchen counter or on the floor, it's going to just stay there. But if it falls into the ground, that's the hope that it has of growing into more. It remains alone, but if it dies and if it's planted, it produces a lot of grain. Here's a key statement for all of us. He who loves his life will lose it. People that you see out in the world that seem so successful, that seem so rich, powerful, whatever it may be, living a good life. We used to do this TV show. Some of us that are older will remember. The Lifestyles of the Who. Rich and famous, right? If they're building up their lives here, where is their treasure? It's right here. If you're seeking to improve and make your life here fabulous, you're going to lose your life because the only life that matters is not the one that's here right now. He who loves his life will lose it. Alternatively, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So if you're not focusing on how big can a bank account get, how many 
barns can I have to store all my stuff? Your life will be growing by leaps and bounds in the hereafter. If anyone serves me, if anyone wishes to serve me, let him follow me. If where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. The eternal paradox. It's so hard to understand this paradox, because it is a paradox. You want to save your life? Give it up. Give it up. Want to live forever? Die to yourself here and now. Focus on serving other people. What a paradox. People don't do that. They will seek to have as much security here and now, as much money, as much power, whatever it is. Every year, last time I checked, lots of people die. Oh. And sometimes it's those rich and famous, it's those powerful people. They're not real powerful now, are they? Because they're not here anymore. One. Have a life that goes on and on and on, a life where you really are important and belong. Don't focus on the here and now. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour? But what was the purpose for which I came into the world? Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. When was the first time, or a first time in the life of Jesus, in the time of Jesus, where it, the Father's name was glorified? Well, we're coming up on the memory of that time here next month. When Jesus is born and the angels appear to the shepherds, do you remember what they're saying? They're not singing it, although I can't help but think of a song when I think about it. They're saying it, glory to God. When Jesus is born, God's name was glorified because he had finally put his plan into action by sending his son into the world. When is it also glorified? When that plan comes to its purpose, when Jesus dies and is resurrected. Both ends, bookends, if you will, the life of Jesus are glorifying the name of now this sound, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people who stood by heard it and thought that it had thundered. Who knows what the voice of God would sound like, right? They're like, whoa, what was that? They didn't know what it was. It sounded like some thunder. Others had said an angel had spoken to them. They didn't know what to make of it. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, to me. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. What does that mean? If I be lifted up from the earth, the way he died on the cross, the Romans would have nailed him to the cross. Sometimes they tied people to the cross. We're told they nailed Jesus to the cross. And they lift up the cross and drop it into a hole. Jesus didn't die standing on the earth. He didn't die laying on the earth. He died lifted up where people could see him. And that death, by being lifted up from the earth, has been the focal point of people coming to Jesus ever since. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, lives forever. 
How then can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The people understood this lifting up to mean dying. When Jesus said, I must be lifted up, they understood. You can tell by what they say that that's implying Jesus is going to die. They saw people crucified much, much too often by the Romans. The Jews connected the Son of Man, the Messiah, to an everlasting kingdom, but here Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man, but also claiming he would soon be dead. How can the Son of Man that we have been talking about for so long, who's going to have an everlasting kingdom, die? How does that fit? The jigsaw puzzle did not fit in the minds of the people. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. This is what we read earlier. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Look at that last statement again. You ever gotten up in the middle of the night to go get something? You knew where everything was. Maybe the last time you got a mental picture of where things are on the floor. Not any fun when somebody has moved something and left something out, is it? Put a, like a, put a, a brick on a block, a cinder block in the middle of the floor and see if you don't hear some shouting in the middle of the night somebody gets up. When you walk in the dark is when you have the most problems. That's why even a lot of phones today have a little flashlight. We don't like the dark. Well, we have the light with us, even today, Jesus. Am I walking with Jesus in the light? Or am I walking in a life without Jesus, which would be in darkness? Even for us, that time of walking in the light is going to come to an end. The opportunity to walk in the light will go away. Either by the end of the world, I know it hasn't happened in the 2,000 years since Jesus was raised up and went up to heaven, be with God that could happen in five minutes. I don't know. Or an opportunity to be walking in the light could happen when any of us, we all have that appointment, might come. The time to walk in the light is always now. It's always now. Jesus is talking about the light leaving the earth. You know, him leaving the earth, but it applies to us in terms of living in Jesus today. But although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, in Isaiah 53. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah had also said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. You know, it really isn't such that God forced these people to disbelieve. God didn't make it where they couldn't believe, but they were not going to believe because they thought, we've got God's way figured out. Don't confuse me, if you will, with any facts. I know I've run into people that seem like, I don't want to hear your facts. I already know what my conclusions are. And the people had done the same thing. How can this Son of Man, how can the Christ, who's going to have an everlasting kingdom, be lifted up? They made their conclusions and they weren't listening to the light as he was walking the earth. They were blinded and their hearts were closed because they were not open to God's message. Uh, it conflicted with 
what they had already thought. These things Isaiah said when he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him, John tells us. That was 700-something years before the time of Jesus. Nevertheless, even though so many of the people did not believe, we had just been told, look at this thing. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, rulers of the people of Israel, um, many believed in Jesus. No man ever spoke like this man spoke. Right? But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The world this day seems and has been for a long time on a fast train headed toward disaster. And if you want to get on the train, why you want to get on the train, I don't know. But if you want to get on the train, you can't possibly really believe in all that stuff about Jesus. You can't believe there's right or wrong. You can't believe there's a way we ought to live and a way we shouldn't live. And if I believe that way, if I ever say it out loud, going to get put out, not so much of the synagogue, but I'll get put out of where I really like being. And so sometimes people don't follow after Jesus because of fear of things not going the way they want. They believed, but at the same time they didn't believe. Do we suffer from that same problem sometimes? I think so, because if we're ever in situations where we could say a word about Jesus, but it's not going to be convenient, it's not going to be helpful to what I'm doing tomorrow. Sometimes we may think the safest thing is to you know, put the button in the lip and keep your mouth closed. These people did it, and that's not a good thing. Not a good thing. Then Jesus cried out, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Remember that? He's been talking about light and dark. You're walking in the light. That's a good thing that's following after Jesus. You're walking in the dark. Things are not going to go well. If we've believed, you can't walk in darkness anymore. The whole point of baptism is to illustrate the time that you die yourself and you're a new person who comes up out of that water. You can't live the way you used to live. You can't. That's not part of who you are now. Living as a follower of Jesus. He says here too, If anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The statements Jesus makes are going to be what our lives are compared to. Have I been someone who has loved my neighbor? Have I been someone that loves God? Have I been someone that has my treasure here on the earth or in heaven? The statements Jesus made is going to be the standard against which I'm compared. You're going to fail in that comparison. Unless... God's not looking at your life. He's looking at the life of Jesus because you're a member of God's family. That's the, the real joy, the, the fabulous thing about that coming judgment. If you're a member of God's family, you're going to be white as snow. You're going to be washed clean. God's not going to see your failures because Jesus will have paid the price for every one of them. 
I don't want to be judged by my actions. I want to be judged by merely having my hope over in Jesus. Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus came to deliver the message God wanted him to deliver. And I know his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus didn't come down somehow to correct what God had told people in times past. He didn't come down to correct what had been told to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He came down to explain what God really intended all along. You know, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is not a command that originates with Jesus. God had told the people of Israel to love your neighbor as yourself. He told the people of Israel to love the stranger, the immigrant in the land, because you know what it was like to be a stranger. All of these things about love are in what the Jewish people have been told. And like so many times, what we want to do is write everything down as rules and regulations. Check, 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 check. The only checklist that you really have from Jesus, the only checklist God's concerned is, are you one of my people? Are you someone whose heart is seeking me? Are you a member of God's family? That's it. That's all there is to it. Now that changes your whole life. That's a big deal. That leads to all sorts of other conclusions, but that's the only box to check, as it were. Now look, these words right here are the last public teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You believe in Jesus? If you're walking in darkness, that's a contradiction. You're either really not walking in darkness, and I suspect if you said, yeah, I am walking in darkness, you know what darkness is. I'm living for myself. I'm doing what I want to do. The things I do are hurting people. That's walking in darkness. If you're walking in darkness, that shouldn't be possible if you believe in Jesus, if you're a member of God's family. Jesus also said, I have not spoken of my own authority. I didn't come down here and invent this stuff. I came down here to tell you what God has been intending all through history. And he says, I know his command is everlasting life. What is God's command that is everlasting life? You need to love God, love your neighbor, Come to Jesus, understanding what he did for you, and then dying to yourself so that you're not living the way you want to live, but you're living your life for God. So in summary, I call Jesus the perfect servant, the perfect servant, because he did what God sent him here to do. I've not spoken my own authority, my own words. I'm speaking what God has sent me to speak question to leave you with this morning. What kind of servant are we? What kind of servant am I? What kind of servant are you? What would God say about you, about me? Would he look down and say, you're my servant. You're my servant. Or would he say, yeah, not so much. The kind of servant we are is up to us. That's the good news. Whatever kind of servant you have been before this morning doesn't have to stay that way. 
You can change by bringing your heart before God and asking for prayer and forgiveness. Or you can change if your heart's never come to God by coming and saying, I want to be a member of God's family. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for God. And in a short, short time, you can die yourself and be raised to walk in newness of life. The choice is up to us as we stand in the same.